A few years ago, the Royal Shakespeare Company decided to make what was, for them, a groundbreaking choice. In 2012, 76 years after it was first done in the U.S., 15 years after it was first done in Canada, the RSC decided to stage the first-ever high-profile, all-black British Shakespeare production, Julius Caesar, set in Africa. As it turns out, the experience was so remarkable that the actor who played Brutus decided to write a book about it. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. The actor was Patterson Joseph, and the book is Julius Caesar and Me, exploring Shakespeare's African play. Joseph was at the National Black Theater in Harlem recently, performing his one-man show, Sancho, an act of remembrance about the first black man in England to cast a vote. We invited him into the studio for a talk. Julius Caesar and Me takes an unflinching look at Joseph's experience at the RSC, both his time in 2012 doing Caesar and in the 1990s when this son of St. Lucian parents found himself one of only four black people in the building. He also talks about his early work, performing the sharp and boldly reimagined Shakespeare of the Cheek by Jowl Company, and his thoughts about race in British theater, about the proper way to play Brutus, about received pronunciation, and much more. We call this podcast Barrett, as our Roman actors do. Patterson Joseph is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Patterson, you write in your book that before you started work on this RSC production, you had some doubts of your own about whether it was appropriate to set Julius Caesar in Africa. So what were you concerned about? I think it's just one of those things that as a performer who happens to be black, sometimes you have to be a bit careful about not allowing that to be a sort of shtick, really. Like, oh, look, we're going to do a black production, so let's get some black actors in and... Um, So I wanted to be very careful. I sort of sidled into it just to make sure that it was all above board and we were doing this for sound reasons, not just because it would be fashionable. But um, no, it was a well-founded reason for doing the show. So that wiped out that fear. Yeah, I imagine some of what you're talking about is maybe comes under that category of the Disneyfication of, of Africa, <laughs> a concern about that? Yes. Yes, I don't know where he got that from, but it's a Cyril Unry who played Cassius in this production. It's one of his phrases. But I, I think it's a good catch-all phrase to say, look, I think the Irish have the same thing. They call it fiddly-dee Irish, that sometimes when Americans do Irish, they're all kind of leprechaun-y. And it's, it's, it, for Irish people, it feels really insulting. I lived in Dublin for, for some time. I have very many Irish friends, so they, they do bulk at that. So I think the equivalent is, yes, the Disneyfication of Africa, sort of making Africa look um, exotic. Right. So you did have these le- leprechaunish uh, issues going on. <laughs> and and you say that you went in for a, even before the read-through, you, you went in to talk to the RSC about this production and that the director, Greg Duran, pretty much won you over. How did he do it? And, and what was his explanation of why Julius Caesar is Shakespeare's African play. Well, one of the things he said to me was, look, I've wanted to do this play for very many years, decades, in fact. And whenever a director starts a conversation like that, I tend to be on side already because a burning desire to do a show is not the same as, well, it's on the schedule, we've got to do it, (laughs) which obviously (laughs) happens in a big institution like the Royal Shakespeare Company. Right, and, oh, this time, let's do it all black. Exactly, yes. But this time, I really felt very strongly that Greg's connection with the African continent was personal 
His husband is uh, Sir Anthony Cher, who's a South African-born actor. Recently on our podcast. Ah, Mm -hmm. well, yes, one of our great, obviously, Shakespearean actors. So that he had sound reasons for doing it because he'd also spoken to the leading figures in South African theatre, John Carney in particular, who was a stalwart um, actor at the uh, market theatre in the time of apartheid, working with Athol Fugard and the other great playwrights at that theatre. And it was John who said, well, it's clearly Shakespeare's African play because it follows a certain pattern. Not all African countries have been through this, but more than we'd like. A great leader, a rebel, usually prosecuted by the authorities, then released, becomes the leader, everybody follows him, and there's a consolidation of power which leads to a kind of dictatorship. Men are flesh and blood and apprehensive. Yet in the number I do know but one that unassailable holds on his rank, unshaked of motion. A coup, a vacuum, civil war and chaos. And that I am he. Let me a little show it, even in this. I mean, it's in other nations too, but it's a very African pattern, so I can see why John said that. But the thing, the killer blow for me, was the what we call the Robin Island Shakespeare, which is um, the Bhagavad Gita, um, was allowed in to Robin Island, <clears throat> the prisoners who were there in the apartheid regime when they wanted to get rid of a lot of the ANC leaders. They didn't murder them, thankfully. They, they put a lot of them in prison on that island. But they were a- allowed some religious books, and the Bhagavad Gita came in. But inside was the complete works of Shakespeare. This was actually having, our very first podcast on this. Uh, on this I mean, series. what a wonderful way to start. I mean, it's such a, it's such a, I mean, there's some, there's some sort of such humor about that. And I love humor in darkness. They were so cheeky that they thought, listen, the authorities are so dumb, they won't even open this book. And then this was, as you know, handed around to many uh, of the, uh, well, all of the inmates had a go at it. And everybody annotated their favorite section and the most annotated in that prison at that time was Julius Caesar. And Greg told that story at this meeting. Mm, yes. It's so interesting to talk about this as if it's something new because this this process of reframing Shakespeare in Africa, it's something that has happened before on, on the continent in the 1960s. And we've talked about it on this podcast too, that Julius Caesar was staged all over Africa in a lot of different African languages. Yeah, there you go. That's the whole Shakespeare's African play thing mirrored there, a bit like um, The Crucible, Arthur Miller's The Crucible, done a lot in Central America and um, widely done in in, um, dictatorial situations. Exactly, subversively. Really, just the way Shakespeare, in Shakespeare's time, these plays about anarchy or revolution or or ones that Mm. were critical of the monarchy were just thinly disguised by setting them in another time period or country. Yeah, I mean, we're looking at 1599, aren't we, in the succession to the throne of Elizabeth I. This whole idea of there's going to be a change of regime, but who is going to be in charge? And will there be a sort of coup? Well, that's true. And this place where anarchy flows in, and and then the play picks up on that, that's where Julius Caesar uh, takes the story. This emotional and psychological toll that that political reality takes on conspirators, that, that plays out in the domestic realm. And that's essentially your Brutus's story. And you write that Brutus says um, your favorite political line in all of Shakespeare, the abuse of greatness. The abuse of greatness is when it disjoins remorse from power. Mm, Such a great line, isn't it? It's so well balanced. 
and to speak truth of Caesar, I have not known when his affection swayed more than his reason, but tis a common proof that lowliness is young ambition's ladder, whereto the climber upward turns his face, but when he once attains the upmost round, he then unto the ladder turns his back, looks in the clouds, scorning the base degrees by which he did ascend. I mean, I think about Bashar al-Assad, and I wonder about him. You know, he was educated partly in, in, in the UK, so was his wife. I can't believe that they didn't imbibe some of that tradition of fair play. Um, I know that's part cliche, but there is a lot of that in the British still. I can't believe that he could be that cold-hearted about his people, mm. that there must be a struggle somewhere in that man. But he has literally done what Shakespeare warns. He's disjointed remorse from power. It must be by his death. And for my part, I know no personal cause to spun at him, but for the general, he would be crowned. Well, the question I have for you as an actor is how you come to grips with the moral compromise that Brutus does make in this infamous argument with himself in, in this passage in order to play this role, you know, and, and you say how you saw it is, am I morally justified in assassinating Caesar for what he might become and what he hmm. might do? And since the quarrel will bear no color for the thing he is, fashion it thus, that what he is augmented would run to these and these extremities and therefore think him as a serpent's egg which hatched would as his kind grow mischievous and kill him in the shell. I think at that point he has already in his heart decided it has to happen. And now he has to bring a kind of logical argument to it because he is, you know, he's a stoic, so he has to think it through. So he's enunciating but it for himself he, because that's how you play it, yeah. I would say. Yeah, that's exactly how I wanted to play it. I wanted him to think it through there and then. Thus must I piece it out. Shall Rome stand under one man's oar? What? Rome? My ancestors did from the streets of Rome the Tarquin drive when he was called a king. Speak. Strike. Redress. The dictatorship that's going to lead to to a monarchy can only be stopped by the death of Caesar. Now, how do I justify that in myself? And, and allow myself to sleep, because I haven't been sleeping. But he has to fight this with logic. And the logic he brings is, this is to stop what will happen in the future, what I believe Caesar will become. And it's, it's, not, a, it's not a very convincing argument in some ways, but it's the best he can come up with. Oh, Rome, I make thee promise. If the redress will follow, Thou receivest thy full petition at the hand of Brutus. Can we talk about the accent now? Because we hear in this clip, you're not speaking received pronunciation, but a kind of uh, an African accent, and, and that the yeah. whole production is, is naturally is in this accent. So it's it's hmm. set hmm. Uh, somewhere in, in uh, Africa. Yes. And that this was originally your idea, at least the accent part of it. 
Tell us about that, because you say it was a bit of a controversial issue. The, what, what I specifically wanted was an accent that was not syllabic. West African tends to be syllabic, and that means a heavy emphasis on most syllables, obviously. And it lends itself to uh, poetry in to the extent that if it's rhythmic poetry, it's great because it has the in it anyway. But because we know that this is an underlying rhythm, that the uh, iambic pentameter rhythm is an underlying rhythm and we don't hit it strongly, we don't go to be or not to be, that is the question, because that's not how people speak. So in order to make it smooth and we don't have something that, forgive the, the, I'm rather doing it just off the top of my head, to be or not to be, that is the question. We don't want that because what that does is it makes you listen to the rhythm rather than the words. On the eastern side of Africa, there is a more, I would describe it, as a more lyrical way of speaking. So that instead of having to be or not to be, that is the question, you would have to be or not to be, that is the question. And I thought that that would lend itself very well to the rhetorical speeches in Shakespeare in a way that perhaps the comedy of errors might really lend itself to the syllabic West African sound. This is so interesting. This is explaining how you picked the accent that you did pick because, as you say or imply, Africa is a, is a continent of, of what, some 1,500 languages and, and all even more dialects and, and accents. And, and your initial idea, though, to use this East African accent, I understand, wasn't all that popular with the cast. Well, when we think about this in terms of the African diaspora, the slave trade was largely conducted off the west coast of Africa. We're talking about what they called the Guinea coast. So we're talking about Ghana, Nigeria. Uh, and those nations transposed, if you like, their rhythms to English, in some cases French. But you can still hear in Jamaican, in Barbadian or Bayesian, as we like to say, people from Barbados, uh, Grenadian and St. Lucians, there is a syllabic quality for the most part. The people who were in the production were from that origin, either Caribbean or uh, directly West African. So for, for us, if you like, that's the easiest way to do an African accent is to go directly to Ghana or Nigeria. And so pulling it across the continent and saying, let's try East African because of, it will give us a different flavor. And after all, this is a fictional African country, so we don't have to base it on our ethnicities, if you like. There was a bit of, wait a minute. <laughs> Hold th on. This is much easier for us to do <laughs> like this. Yes, you know the accent because you've trained at it, but we don't. Now, I had only mooted that. I hadn't, I hadn't said that I was going to do it. I said that, look, Greg, if we, were, if we did an accent, what do you think it would be? My suggestion would be this. And so we had a bit of a discussion about well, that. Well, and I love your story about some friend of yours in New York thought you were doing a Scottish accent. Oh, Lordy. Thinking? Yeah, that fella. I mean, bless his heart. I mean, uh, we, were, we were in London and uh, he thought I was doing <laughs> Welsh. Um, now, how and why... I couldn't, I can't figure out now, but you know, he was a man of a certain age and maybe mine was the strongest East African accent because I was the most confident, but to go, it must be by his death. And then if you were doing it in Welsh, it, it must be by his death. I was thinking, 
Why? And I spent hours afterwards in the middle of the night going, it must be by his death. Of course it sounds Welsh. <laughs> and the fact that he said, really you know, Richard Burton, yeah, huh. Richard Burton, that wonderful Valley's accent, Anthony Hopkins. I was like, did I sound like that? <laughs> um, it took me a long time to get over that. But thankfully, everybody laughed at it when I told them and uh, I got over it. Beware the Ides of March. <laughs> What man is that? A soothsayer bids you beware the Ides of March. Set him before me. Let me see his face. Well, besides the accents, what else was African about this production? Let us leave him. Pass! Physicality, I think. The way of expressing oneself. The way that you can become very fiery very suddenly and express yourself very f- in a fiery way and then pull back. And just for people who didn't see it, too, there were some very basic things, including uh, uh, at least w- when you were in Stratford, uh, a whole production in the beginning, in the opening, with a chorus, with dancing. fearfulness. Honestly, this was the point at which I remember one of the other actors sidling up to me and saying, this could go very badly. (laughs) (laughs) Because what could have been awful, of course, is that you could start the production going, well, we've set this in Africa. We haven't done a very good job of setting up Africa, but here's a bit of dancing about. Ah, a kind of Lion King gloss. Oh, dear. So that would would have been the proper Disneyfication of the whole setup. But because we had this wonderful choreographer, um, Diane Mitchell, she knew how to ground us, I think, in an African physical expression. And then we had uh, Teo Akinbode, who was wonderful with the music. And so setting up a new African nation, um, helped us not just ground us in the African setting, but helped us to understand the passion with which we were going to do this play, the this sort of openness and physicality that we were going to do this play in, and, and it worked. Most noble brother, you have done me wrong. Uh, judge me, you gods. Wrong I mine enemies? And if not so, how should I wrong a brother? Brutus, this sober form of yours hides wrongs, and when you do them... Yes, be content. Speak your grief softly. I do know you well. Julius Caesar speaks on on so many levels. Uh, As you point out, it's political, but Shakespeare is brilliant at bringing the domestic to the political. Mm. And you Mm. definitely see this played out in Brutus's scenes with his wife Portia and, and of course, in this close relationship he has with his uh, conspirator and friend Cassius. And you write early on that you realize that Brutus and Cassius carry the emotional through line of the play, that scene after scene, you two are either conspiring or violently arguing. And Hmm. one of the obvious examples of this is the tenth scene after Caesar has been killed and Brutus and Cassius, they're wrangling. Before the eyes of both our armies here, which should perceive nothing but love from us, let us not wrangle. Oh, yeah, wrangling is a very polite uh, term. Bickering is also a very polite term. I don't know, anybody who's got a sibling and you have a dispute with them, they're the people who, you, who can touch a button in you that delivers a rage that no one else can touch. And these two very smart men 
they almost get to the point of going, oh, you think you're the big one. No, you think you're the big one. I'm older than you. <laughs> you're older than me, but I'm stronger than you. And literally, you think these men are the highest intellect in Rome? There was a rehearsal where we just went all out and drove at each other like children, really demonstrating that part of the text. And it worked like a dream. Oh, that's fantastic, but, because I always found this scene so confusing. I don't even, I didn't even know really what it was about. Some guy we've never heard of maybe took a bribe or maybe he didn't. And all cares? of a sudden, yeah, all who of a sudden they're, they're, about they're this shouting guy. at each other. But you have wronged me, not appearing this. You have condemned and noted Lucius Pella for taking bribes here of this audience. Wherein my letters, praying on his side because I knew the man, were slighted off. You wronged yourself to write in such a case. In such a time as this, it is not meet that every nice offense should bear his comment. Let me tell you, Cassius, you yourself are much condemned to have an itching palm. The truth of the matter is the argument is about you two. It's about power. And it's about, we did this thing, it went wrong, whose fault was it? And rather than talking about that, they talk about somebody else. As we do, right? As You've we taken do. my Cheerios. I told you those, that was my milk. You've taken my milk out of the fridge. But that's not what it's about. And that's the genius of Shakespeare's domestic scenes. He makes these characters, I think I do say at some point, he boils them down to their human essence. You have to hedge me in. I am a soldier, I. Older in practice, abler than yourself, to make conditions. Go to, I say you are not. I am. I say you are not. Touch me no more, I shall forget myself. Have mind upon your health. Tell me no further. Away, slight man. It's possible. <laughs> Hear me, for I will speak. Must I give way and room to your rash collar? Shall I be frighted when a madman stares? Oh, ye gods, ye gods, must I endure all this? All this, I more fret till your proud heart break. That is the genius of Shakespeare, is his domesticity. Portia, look at that. You know, he's just, Brutus, wrestled with himself, seen the conspirators, shown them his strength, told them not to kill Antony, even though he really had to push back on that. They've gone. And here he is, just about to, you know, go off and do the deed. And here comes Portia saying, how, how come you haven't come to bed? Wherefore rise you now? It is not for your health, thus to commit your weak condition to the raw cold morning. Uh, nor for yours neither. <laughs> You've ungently Brutus stole from my bed. And yesternight at supper you suddenly arose and walked about musing and sighing with your arms across. And when I asked you what the matter was, you stared upon me with ungentle looks. I edged you further, then you scratched your head and too impatiently stamped with your foot. Yet I insisted, yet you answered not, but with an angry wafture of your hand gave sign for me to leave you, so I did. And he says nothing. This rather verbose man says nothing to her for ages. So she has to keep, and she doesn't, Shakespearean women do not badger their men. They're very much cleverer than that. Thank you very much. Shakespeare's written characters that are intelligent, all of them. And so she touches him where it hurts his truth, his honesty. No, my Brutus. You have some sick offense within your mind, which by the right and virtue of my place I ought to know of. And upon my knees I charm you. By my once commended beauty, by all your vows of love, and that great vow which did incorporate and make us one, that you unfold to me, yourself, your half, why you are heavy. 
It's a beautiful, emotional, logical argument that totally flaws him. And it's so domestic and beautiful. It is. And Brutus is very, very accessible in the way that you play him. In fact, he whips back and forth in his loyalties and his emotions. And as the play goes on, he's increasingly unstable. Of course, he hears schizophrenic, talking practically. To him. Yes. Yeah, well, that's it. And as I watched the RSC production, I remembered your performance on an American TV show, uh, The Leftovers. You, you, oh, that guy. Holy yeah, way. You play oh a gosh, cult leader. What a well, right. And, although you play him as a mad person who's very sane or perhaps may- maybe a, yes, a sane yes, person yes. who is totally mad. It's really well, that's, fascinating. Well, that's it. Yeah, no, you caught, you caught it in a nutshell, actually, that juxtaposition. I think it was a possibly a, a Laurence Olivier quote, but it, he may have got it from somewhere else, where if you're playing somebody who's old, find out where they're young in spirit. And if they're, if they're meant to be young, find out where they're a little old. And I think that works for everything, that there should always be a kind of juxtaposition between what you're meant to be because we're all a mixture of one thing and another. And with Brutus, I'd noticed very early on, as I say in the book, how quixotic, I suppose you could say, he is. You had to be, I thought, on the moment. Because if you set up this blanket, he is a Stoic. It would not only be rather boring, but also you'd make him less human. That's the beauty and the genius of Shakespeare, that he can balance those two things so easily. Well, we're talking about Brutus and Julius Caesar, but we should say that this wasn't your first experience at the RSC, that you first worked... It wasn't my first rodeo. No, (laughs) no, you'd been around and you'd first worked on a production (laughs) there way back in 1990 when you said that you were the only black actor, maybe the only black employee anywhere in the RSC, and and that you were painfully aware that you were a curiosity. (laughs) Yeah, I I wasn't the only black actor. but but, uh, Yeah, no, but I mean, there were four of us. In a, in a company of 85. Ah. Now, what, what is it that people do to make one feel like a curiosity? I think just if you had four women in a production, in a, in a company of 85, you'd be a curiosity as well. And actually, people wouldn't notice you in a way that you would not be noticed if they were 20 women. And in some ways, it's a pressure on you. And it's also a pressure on the organization. Because if you've got those four actors... You've got to do something about that. You couldn't have a token. You'd have to put them in positions of prominence. Now, it's fine. You've hired four people. You've presumably gone through the whole process. There are four people who can handle what they have to handle in order to do the job well. But what if sometimes they go, well, oh, gosh, we haven't got any. Let's get five in. And they're not quite up to the mark. Because this is going to happen. What happens then is people go, well, of course, yes. That's why they don't have them here, because they're not very good. Um, and the RSC, uh, the very first time I was there, it wasn't the institution that was that was doing it to me. It was the fact of me being only one of four. I mean, also, by the way, there were about three Irish uh, people, clearly Irish people, uh, clearly as in accents. And, it, and I remember of you saying, the RSC has gone young, black and Irish. Like, mm, who represents that? <laughs> not me. I mean, it's not me. Who are they talking about? They're not talking about that. It's like a board game or quiz I know, I know. And, you know, these things still come back. Unfortunately, well, they do I'm come thinking back every now and that then. because 20 years later, you're at the RSC, and here you are in an all-black production, and it's set in Africa. This is a, this is, seems a whole new world. But you, you say when the show went to London, the public relations staff pulled all the black act- actors aside, and kind of said, "So, black colleagues, how do we get these black people to come to the show?" <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, <laughs> embarrassing for them. I do. I mean, honestly, With I have good some intentions. sympathy. Yes. Really good intentions. Because, yeah. of course, they didn't want it just to be white people seeing the show. But honestly speaking, please look ahead. I think that um, the RSC has certainly made some inroads and they learnt a lot from our production. But, you know, it was the first. So I could see why it was, it was um, a new thing for them. But we were in 2012. It was a struggle for us to not be insulted by that. But at the same time, we all thought, well, look, you've got to get bums on seats. And, um, you know, the black British populace, and I'll say this um, very freely, are not brilliant at supporting black performers in classical plays, partly because it's not part of their culture. That's not the thing that they do. We're not great theatre goers. That's just the truth of it. And also there seems to be, in terms of theatre in the UK, an educational level that has to be reached before you see people, I mean, I'm talking about white working class people, seeing people in the theatre because it's not part of their tradition. Why? I would say it goes back to school. Um, The majority of grammar schools, which are the schools that have the sort of pupils with the uh, best records, and private schools where you pay have a big arts side to them. So it becomes part of your culture as a kid. If you suddenly are asked at 25 and you've never had any dealings with theatre, you should be going to the theatre. Why? Because there are black people in it. Why, why should you? <laughs> I don't go to rock concerts, not because I, I don't like rock, but because I was never introduced to it as a kid. Unless it's introduced at an early stage, it's very hard to get people into the theatre. And I think that is also part of the issue, too. Well, that brings up this big final question, I guess, which is what the place is for black performers in Shakespeare today. Because we started this conversation talking about how your cast members, uh, one of them in particular, if said that they felt here, finally, we're in this all-black cast, and I feel like an individual again. Hmm, I feel individuated yes. again. Lovely word. Yeah, that's Adjoando again, yes. Yeah. yeah, and 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 it made me think, here you have performers and directors who feel that we are in a post-race place in theater and film, but some feel just the opposite. I mean, for instance, Greg Duran at the RSC had a black Cordelia. You know, there's quite a bit of diversity casting, as you say now at the RSC, but... Hmm. Diversity casting is still a way to make an exception for different races. So how, how do you see this point in Shakespearean theater vis-a-vis race? Yeah, that's a big question. I think the ideal is that there is no difference between an actor of Indian ethnicity, African, Afro-Caribbean ethnicity, or any of the European ethnicities or Middle Eastern etc. I think that when we get to a place where we're not seeing it, that's ideal. Why could you get away with this in theatre in a way you can't get away with it so much or not allowed to get away with it so much on film? Because film traditionally has been a depiction of, quote unquote, reality. In the theatre, because you've already gone in there and pretended that this stage, which is in you know the middle of London, is actually Africa, and these people on stage are in funny costumes and they're pretending to be dukes and duchesses but I know that guy he's in that soap opera that I watch that reality is within you and is within the performers and as long as they're convincing and are convinced you all tend to be convinced too 
And more specifically to Shakespeare, uh, you know, in the ni- 1980s, playwrights like August Wilson said black performers don't need Shakespeare. They should be doing work by black writers. Is, is that mm. time past as well, or do you still feel that there there isn't quite an equal place at the table for black artists in the Shakespeare theater world? Yeah, I mean, I just think it's what you want to do. I mean, I, if I want to do Shakespeare, I should be allowed to do Shakespeare, right? I mean, if I don't, if I, it's not my interest, then I sh- I'm allowed to ignore it. I don't know that Shakespeare should be seen as anything other than one of the playwrights, of course. For those of us who love him, he's the greatest. But not everybody loves him, and that's okay. It doesn't make them philistines or, or, or stupid. It just means that he hasn't hit them. He hasn't. The bug hasn't been sort of delivered to them, if you like, the Shakespeare virus. But those of us who caught him early or caught him at a time when they were forming their own opinions about what the world was we'll always feel an ownership of Shakespeare, no matter who tells us we're allowed to or not. It's nothing to do with an outside authority telling us he's ours or not. It's to do with our own desire to connect with him and to connect with his themes, which are universal and international and should never, ever be um, ethnically uh, put in a box. Well, I'm really glad you caught the bug so that I could get a chance to talk with you on this podcast. Thank you so Thank much, you. Patterson. Thanks so much. Thank you. Patterson Joseph is an actor and playwright. His book about the Royal Shakespeare Company's 2012 production of Julius Caesar is called Julius Caesar and Me, Exploring Shakespeare's African Play. It was published in the U.S. by Methuen Drama, a division of Bloomsbury Books, in 2018. He was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Barrett, as our Roman actors do, was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor and Esther Farrington. Esther French is the web producer. We had technical help from Andrew Feliciano and Evan Marquardt at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California, and Robert Ald and Deb Centopoulos at Radio Foundation in New York. We'd also like to thank Illuminations for allowing us to use excerpts from their DVD of the Royal Shakespeare Company's 2012 production of Julius Caesar. On recent episodes of Shakespeare Unlimited, I've asked you to rate and review us on iTunes. This time, I'd like to tell you why that matters. Podcasts with lots of ratings are the ones more likely to be suggested to other listeners. If you're enjoying Shakespeare Unlimited and you think that others, people you don't know, might enjoy it too, The best way to let them know is to rate and review the podcast. Thank you so much for your help. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.